This morning, we're gonna continue in our series through the book of 2 Timothy, and we're getting close to the end here. And I wanna share a story with, with you of William Tyndale. William Tyndale was most likely born in a small village near Dursley, England, around 1494. And there really should be a movie that's made about William Tyndale. It would most definitely be an adventure story. This is not a story of some scholarly ivory tower theologian, no. Tyndale had a singular desire, and that was to see the word of God available in the native language of his people. His family descended from prosperous landowners, wool merchants, and administrators, and when he was quite young, he went to college at Oxford University, and then he attended Cambridge. The Lord blessed Tyndale with a special ability to learn languages. He could speak eight languages fluently. Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Spanish, French, Italian, English, and German. I only know two, English and Canadian. <laughs> eh? Gifted. And he began as a diligent student of the New Testament and then the Greek language while he was in college. And in those days, men studying to become priests needed to ask the bishop for permission to read or translate any of the Bible. And rarely, permission was granted. So Tyndale was one of the few who dared to study the scriptures in secret, without permission. And at first, he only studied as, a, as he did other books. And he thought of it as a kind of a religious textbook. And soon, though, however, he began to see the Bible was much different. The Holy Spirit began to work in his heart and became to believe the Bible is God's word. And through this, he learned to love the Lord Jesus Christ above all. And one day when Tyndale was talking with another priest, the priest remarked, I believe it would be better to be without God's law than to be without the Pope's law. This infuriated Tyndale. And he said, I defy the Pope and all his laws, if God spares my life, I will make it so in England that plowboys, farm workers, will know more of the Bible than, these, than many of the priests do now. And God enabled him to do that very thing. Tyndale knew that if people were going to grow and understand the problems with the Roman Catholic Church, they needed the Bible in their own language. They didn't have the word available to them. It was only available in Latin, and very few could read Latin. Many of the priests didn't even know Latin. So if the priests don't know the language of the Bible, can you imagine what the people knew? Tyndale wanted precisely this, the people to hear and know the gospel. But this was against the law in England. In fact, it was, it was a law that was punishable by death. And so Tyndale realized that he could not do this in England, so he left England. He went to Germany and ended up in the city of Mainz. The city of Mainz has a rich history in printing because that's where the very first printing press was set up by Johannes Gutenberg. We've been there. Driving from Luxembourg to Munich, Germany, we stopped in this quaint German town. We visited the printing press. I have a, a copy of uh, John chapter one in Latin. I also have a copy of a ticket I got in the city, so... It's Germany, you know, you, there's no speed limit on the Autobahn, but in the city. So Tyndale was there in, in Mainz to print the Bible in English. 
He assumed a, a false name so that he could fly under the radar and gather just a few people to work on this project with him and selected a printer that he could trust. This group would do their work, normal work during the day, going about their normal business. They would pay the bills as a printer and then keep the shop open. And then they would home after the, they were done in the evening hours. And then he would come, come back in the, in the evening to the shop. And overnight, they would work on printing the Bible in English. And at some point, one of them betrayed Tyndale, turning him over to the authorities. This is, friends, this is straight out of an adventure story. The authorities came. Tyndale's betrayer had a change of mind. And just as he told the authorities, he tips off Tyndale a warning that the authorities were coming. So Tyndale quickly gathers up as many of the pages as he could. He, he only made it for, through the first few chapters of Matthew. So he gathered up the few pages that were printed, bundled them in his satchel, and ran out the back door of the print shop just as the authorities were coming in the front. And he ended up going to the city of Wittenberg in Germany, where he associated himself with, two of you know this, come on, people, church history, Martin Luther in Wittenberg, and his commitment still was to print the word of God in English. And God blessed his efforts. He, he succeeded in printing and producing the Tyndale New Testament. But he was also author of many influential books, one called The Obedience of a Christian. In this book, he explained why it's important to have the Bible in your own language. In his books, he, he explains the Christian duties and condemns the Roman Catholic practices of penance and confession and absolution and worship of saints. And this book has a mighty impact on the people, even falling into the hands of Anne Boland, the, the second wife of King Henry VIII. And she loved to read the scriptures and any books that talked about the scriptures. And God would use Tyndale's book in her life and then through the king's life. But there were many still who didn't want Tyndale to succeed. And Tyndale would be moving on to continue to save his life and his work. He would finish the New Testament, but it was not able to finish the Old Testament. On May 21st, 1535, Tyndale was finally arrested for causing division in the church. His prison cell was small, damp, and gloomy, but his faith in Christ and the love and comfort of God upheld him in these difficult months. Even while in prison, he tried to continue his work. Some historians believe that he, he might have completed translating the books of Joshua through Second Chronicles while in prison. They have one of those letters written to the governor of the prison. He begs for warmer clothing, and then he would be allowed to use his Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary. Sounds familiar if you read the end of 2 Timothy, right? On August 12, 1536, he was sentenced to death after many attempts to persuade him to come back to the Roman Catholic Church. And on October 6, 1536, after 500 days in prison, he was charged with heresy and condemned to die at the stake. The executioners bound him to the stake, strangled him with the chains tied around his neck, and then burned his body to ashes. And his last words were this, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. He was 42 years old. Several years after Tyndale's death, John Roger assembled all of Tyndale's biblical translations, and in 1539, it was published with some help and became known as the Great Bible of 1539. King Henry then made a law that a copy of a Bible was to be placed in every church in England so that all the people might read it and hear it read. Do you own a Bible? How many copies of the Bible do you own? You know, I asked that question and I was curious when I was typing my sermon on Thursday, so I walked around my office and I have 30 copies in my office. 
five different languages. Do you take it for granted having a Bible in your own language? I mean, really, you don't even need a copy. You have a Bible app, right? Wherever you go, and my Bible app has 61 different translations. We all have a copy of the Bible. It isn't illegal. It's very accessible. And friends, I say that because every time we open our English Bible, we should reflect on the price that was paid by the man, William Tyndale. We owe him a debt to his labor. He was convinced that the Bible was so important that he was willing to give his life so that we could have it and own it and read it and understand it. So that we could be called Bible people, a Bible church. And we are here today because of God's word in our lives. And we desire to honor God through our worship services by honoring the word of God. And so this morning, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we've sung the word. We've read the word. We've prayed the word. We will see the word a little later here in the ordinance. And now hopefully I'll preach the word. We're Bible people. So if you have a Bible, and I encourage you to have one open, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Because we need to learn from the Bible. And I want to read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. And so if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have some place at the seats there. And we want to encourage you to take that copy home with you. It's the same copy I use up here every week. Same one. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, this morning's passage is on page 936, and I'm going to read verses 10 through 17. If you're unsure how to read this even, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. So I'm going to read this, but I'm going to do something a little special today. I want you to stand as I read God's word. As Ezra read the word to the people in Nehemiah 8, they stood, and I believe it would be wise for us to do the same this morning. So follow with me as I read. 2 Timothy 3, starting at verse 10, all the way through 17. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Father, we stand before your throne this morning and we thank you for your grace in sending your son to die in our place and to rise again and that he is seated right now next to you. Thank you that we can gather this morning to sit under the preaching of your word. I'm so thankful your people didn't come to see me this morning, but they came to hear from you. May I serve you faithfully this morning. Our desire is that you be glorified. Help us to listen. Help us to accept your word and be patient with your word as it changes us. 
And for your honor and glory we gather this morning. We thank you, God, because of Jesus now we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you came in this morning, you should have got a bulletin and an outline, and in that is just three points. I guess I am a Baptist. Three points. Seems to just fall that way every, every week, most weeks. Trust the Bible because it's God's words. Trust the Bible because it teaches you how to live. Trust the Bible because you'll be completely equipped. So first, trust the Bible because it's God's words. Paul is writing to encourage Timothy in just a few verses that we read earlier before our passage, and we're gonna look at verses 16 and 17 primarily this morning. He, he encourages him again to continue in what he's learned and what he's firmly believed, knowing where he's learned it. Remember, Timothy had been trained by his mom and grandma and, and Paul also, and these scriptures didn't save, but they made him wise to salvation. They brought him to understanding of faith so he could understand who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for him. And the Bible is essential for life. It's the handbook of salvation. So since this Bible is about salvation and salvation is found in Jesus Christ, then who's the focus of the Bible, friends? Jesus. Remember that. And God's words are trustworthy, all of God's word. Paul says in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture, these, these sacred writings that Paul mentions just a few verses earlier, the Greek word for scripture is graphe, from which we get the English word paragraph. And Paul uses the same word for scriptures as he does in 1 Timothy 5 when he quotes the Old Testament and applies it to the church, calling it scripture. But the apostle Peter also includes Paul's writings in the category of scripture. In 2 Peter 3.15, he writes, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with other scriptures. It is clear that Peter regarded Paul's writings as scripture. And you add to this Paul's insistence that his own writings be read publicly, exchanged and shared and obeyed in churches where he communicated. And his own claim in 1 Corinthians 2.13 that his words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. And it's clear that he regarded his own writings as scripture. So when it says that all scripture is breathed out by God, it includes Paul's writings. It includes this letter. And this is certainly what the early church came to believe, what William Tyndale believed and eventually died for. And all scripture is profitable. There's no scripture that isn't useful. There isn't parts of the Bible that we should just skip over. We will, by God's grace, teach and preach from all of scripture. There, there will be sermon series in the future through Old Testament books as we've done for the last four years. Remembering, again, the point of the text and pointing our hearts and our heads to the point of the Bible, Jesus. So there really is no portion of the Bible that God didn't give you for a reason. And because when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Whether that is in the book of Song of Solomon or Leviticus or Jude. All of scripture is necessary for the Christian life. You cannot pick and choose from the Bible what you want to believe. The Bible will have no sustaining power in your life if you make yourself the arbiter of what you will and will not believe. All of the Bible is useful. All of the Bible is necessary. And how do we get the Bible? Paul says, 
all scripture is breathed out by God. Some of the translations maybe you have possibly missed this, but the ESV nails it. The scriptures are breathed out by God. Breathed out. It's, it's from a Greek word, and, and I would try to pronounce it. I'll get it wrong, but part of it is theo, the word God, and, and the other is synostis, the word for breath. And when you speak, your word is you breathed out. Your breath, conditioned by your mind, pours forth into speech. You breathe out your words. And Paul declare, or Peter declares for us, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. John Stott says, God breathed indicates not that Scripture itself or its human authors were breathed into by God, but that Scripture was breathed or breathed out by God. And the Word of God written is identical to God's speech. So if you want to hear a word from the Lord audibly, what should you do? Read the Bible out loud. It is God's word. It is exactly what he intended for us to have his revelation of his will and how we're to live and to please him. And at the same time, it doesn't take away from the Bible's human character. God breathed out his word, but he did it through instruments of his prophets and apostles. Spurgeon says, faith never finds her wisdom in the thoughts of men or in pretended revelation, but she resorts to the inspired writings for her guidance. A sentence from the mouth of God will have no more permanent power of a Christian man than the best composed of human statements. We need the scriptures. We need God's word more than man's word. That's why Paul will turn to encourage us, Lord, Lord willing, next week in the very next sentence in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he charges Timothy to preach the word. Not Timothy's opinion. Not his clever story. Not his passions. Not his ideas. He's to preach the word. Pastors are to preach God's word. Why? Because Paul says in our passage, all scripture is profitable for teaching. All scripture is profitable, it's, it's useful, it's valuable. Scripture brings profit to our lives. And this book is profitable. It's the most practical book in the world. It's not some airy, fairy, speculative, theoretical, idealistic, under, ungrounded, unhelpful treatise. No, it's a profitable, practical book in our world. Spurgeon says, God's word is living and powerful and has a power to enter the heart beyond that of any other word. The words of the Bible strike and stick. They enter and abide. The Bible treats us as we are. It cuts us down to size. It shows us our flaws and then shows us the way forward. The scriptures are powerful and they linger longer than any other words of mere humans. It really is profitable. And, and really, for our lives, you're looking for things that are profitable, right? Do any of you invest money? Do any of you desire to retire someday? Do you invest in things that are unprofitable? Good luck. We all look for the profitable. What is, what is going to bring profit? And friends, for your spiritual life, the Bible is profitable. It brings you the biggest bang for your buck. Every time, it is profitable. So we need to trust the Bible because it's God's words. Second, trust the Bible because it teaches you how to live. God, God doesn't leave us the way we are, but gives us the Bible to teach us how we're to live in this world. 
We shouldn't just believe the Bible, we need to read it and use it in life. If you believe the scriptures are God's inspired words, then you should naturally see it as profitable to change the way you live. God's word meets our deepest needs. It changes our doctrines of life. We begin to live differently because of what God's word says and how we understand it. The Bible shapes our beliefs as well as our lifestyle. It gives us doctrinal truth and will rebuke our lives, correcting us when we stray. He says in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The scriptures are profitable for teaching. Where do you learn to be a Christian? It isn't innately installed in you and become a Christian. You need to learn how to live. How do you make it through suffering? How do you live in this world when everything's going well? What does a healthy marriage look like? How do we raise kids? What should we do? The Bible speaks to these things. And you could browse Amazon and look for books in all these areas, but will those help you love God well while you learn how to be a Christian in those areas? Some will if they draw their conclusions from the Bible. And there's profit to be made when we run to the Bible and to learn how to live as a Christian. There's tremendous benefit from learning from the Bible and how to live this Christian life. Friends, this is why we offer core seminars on Sunday morning. They're there to help you to grow in your Christian life. They're not there just to fill you with knowledge. They're, they're seminars to instruct and to apply the word of God to your life. We don't do this every week just to fill time. I would sleep in. We do this because it's profitable. There's purpose and intent. And so I want to encourage you to, to make it a priority on Sunday mornings to come an hour early so that you can be taught of what God's word says and applied to your life. Friends, are you allowing the scriptures to teach you? Scripture is also profitable for reproof. This is applied negatively because it tells us what we shouldn't believe. It's a rebuke. It's the apologetic function of the word of God. It defends the truthfulness of, of God's word against false doctrines. Scripture shows us our failures and clarifies the point of the mistake and then leads us to obedience in accordance to the positive of what, of what the commands of the Bible says. The Bible tells us when we go wrong and challenges our errors. Just look at the books of First and Second Corinthians, which are primarily books about reproof. Paul is writing to the believers in Corinth because they're not living up to the practical teaching that he had already given them in the book of Romans, that they've already read. And reproving is good and godly. We shouldn't pull away from it. We should lean into it. So friends, are you allowing the scripture to reprove you? Scripture is also profitable for correction. The word correction has to do with straightening things out. Those who listen and take reproof will begin to find their lives will straighten out. They'll be corrected. The Bible doesn't want to leave you the way you are. The word correction is, is, is used only here in the New Testament, and it suggests that Scripture is there to restore our doctrine, how we live, to a right state before God. And God uses correction to restore his people to spiritual positions that they've already forfeited. Correction is, is somewhat described as negative because it tells us what not to do. The Bible exposes us and, and then explains how we're to get back on track and put things right. 
and correction goes, goes right with reproof because after we've been reproved, we need a way forward. In, the, in, in our Bibles, the Corinthian letters are followed by the book of Galatians, which is primarily concerned with correction. Paul was correcting the believers in this city because they were not living doctrinally true of what Paul had taught them. The Galatians were moving away from the simple teaching of the cross to another gospel. And he corrects them. He brings them back straight like a doctor who straightens a bone after it's been broken. In God's word, it straightens us out when we listen to it, when we read it, when we study it. Are you allowing the scripture to correct you? Last, the scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. This is a positive remark in the list besides that of teaching because when we have been taught, reproved, and corrected in our lives, we need to be trained in righteousness. We need to be trained to live righteously. It doesn't come naturally to us. The Bible tells us and shows us the pathways of right living. It shows us a lifestyle conformed to God and his ways. And remember, these are Paul's charges to Timothy to be trained in righteousness in 1 Timothy 6.11. But as for you, O man of God, flee from these things. Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And then he says it again in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Highlight and underline these verses. Memorize these, friends. These are God's instructions to us on how we're to live righteous lives. Are you allowing the scriptures to train you in righteousness? You point me to a person who has walked away from God, from the church, from walking away from other Christians, and most likely will identify that this person started, they stopped listening to the scriptures. They stopped reading the Bible. And they convinced themselves that the Bible wasn't enough. And they were unwilling to let the Bible teach them. Instead, they believed they knew it all. They were unwilling to be reproved. Instead, they would lash out when they would ever be rebuked for their faulty thinking or their living. And they struggled to be corrected with the Bible because they don't want to be corrected. The God-breathed word is profitable for all of life, for all of doctrine, for all of duty, for all of our creed and conduct, for everything. And we call this sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible is sufficient for us, friends. And Scripture is sufficient. And I need to pause here. You know, it hit me on Friday night as I was driving uh, and and this thought hit me. I, I need to include this. This is important because a large percentage of Christians today believe by their words and their actions that Scripture isn't sufficient. There are teachers and preachers that are seeping in to dissuade people from trusting all of the Bible. Wayne Grunem in his book on systematic theology says this as, as a definition for the sufficiency of Scripture. He says, is the Bible enough for knowing what God wants us to believe and what he wants us to do? The sufficiency of Scripture means that it contains all the words of God he intended his people to have in each stage of redemptive history. And now it contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. Scripture contains everything we need for salvation, for trusting him, and for obeying him. 
Friends, God's revelation to us of himself is an act of love. He shows us his love by talking to us through his word. We would have no idea of who he was and what he desired for us without his word. So he, he loves us by giving us his word, his sufficient word. You know, Pastor Ryan went there this morning. Praise the Lord, because that's the same place I'm going. Psalm 119. Turn over with me. All of you college-age students should be ready to go because you've been studying this, right? Psalm 119 is just chock full of God's view of his word, of the psalmist displaying this time and again, of, of God's sufficiency in his word. And I want to jump down to verse 41. It says, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Your salvation according to your promise, then shall I have an answer for him who, who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of your truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I'll meditate on your statutes. And there's so much in this chapter. God giving us his words, expression of his love in this for, verse 41 isn't, isn't meant to be a burden to us, but a way in which God loves us and shows us his love. It's not like God loves you and then says, I'm not going to tell you what to do or who I am. How is that love? No, he gives us himself and then he, he shows us in his word. And he shows us his love and the sufficiency of scripture for 176 verses in Psalm 119. He wants to drill it into our minds of how important it is. And friends, it would do you well. Whatever plans you have, the Seahawks can wait this afternoon. Go home during lunch, open up Psalm 119 and read it together. If you have nowhere else to go, you can come to my house. We'll read it together and note every time you come across the psalmist rehearsing the sufficiency of scripture for their life. It's over and over and over. The Bible is sufficient. And if you don't believe it, God talks about that too in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. So you don't have to worry. You don't have to fret over things you don't know because you don't need to know it. God says, this is enough. God planned it this way, and so we can trust him with the word that he's given us. But there's something that works against the sufficiency of scripture that is very popular. It's this phrase, God told me. Perhaps you've said it. God told me. It was seven years ago that I went and left the house, went to get mail, came back in, received a card, and in this card was a check enclosed, written out to myself. We were in the midst of raising support to go to Sweden, and the card had these eight words, God told me to send this to you, and it was a check for $500. $500. And I thought, sarcastically in my mind, really? God told you to send me $500. What if God told me that you needed to add another zero to the end and send me 
Who's right? How would you like me to stand before you this morning and say, God told me that you're to take me out to a steak lunch? Would I get any takers? Kevin DeYoung has a section in his book, a book entitled Just Do Something. It's a section of his roommate coming back from a date with his girlfriend, and he was discouraged because as he came back to his room, she broke up with him. She said to him, the Holy Spirit told me to break up with you. And DeYoung writes, poor guy, he got rejected not only by this sweet girl, but by the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity took time and a break from pointing people to Jesus to tell this girl not to date my roommate. These and many more are subjective experiences. Are they wrong? I have no idea. I don't know. God still works in the lives of his children. I believe that. But these words, God told me, can be very deceptive and dangerous for people. Another situation has just come to me from a very close friend who was asked to serve in a capacity on a board with some Christians. And after meeting with them a few times, they then realized that it wasn't a good fit. And when they called the person they invited them to serve, the response from them was, well, I had prayed about this. I felt convinced that it was you. God said you were the perfect one. Now you're saying no. Why would God let this happen? I prayed about it, and I believe it's God's will for you to serve on this board. What do you say? My initial reaction to hearing these statements, whether they intended it or not, are actually working against the sufficiency of Scripture in my friend's life. In fact, they're manipulating her. Why? Because they're questioning their view of God and his word for their life. They're taking a subjective experience that they had and are placing it in my friend's life and expecting them to submit to that. Do you see how dangerous and actually sinful this truly is and how we're undermining the sufficiency of Scripture? Let me remind you again of Wayne Grindham's helpful definition. Sufficient scripture means that it contains all the words of God he intended his people to have in each stage of redemptive history. And it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. This person, the one I shared with, is reliant on their subjective feelings more than they're relying on the word of God. They're saying, perhaps not intentionally, that their feelings from God are more important than the Bible that they hold. Or at least it's on the same level. Does the Bible say whether my friend needs to serve in this capacity or not? It's not a biblical role. It's not a biblical office. In fact, this group of people have complete freedom to exist. It's not outside of scripture or allowance. But really, there's no explanation to this existence of this board in the word of God. So my friend has every right to clearly say there's no reason why they shouldn't allow them to step off. And God told me these phrases are really enslavements. They capture people. They're binding our conscience. They, in fact, stalk our conscience, trying to capture it. Now, are we really like a remote control in every decision we're to make? We need to just, just wait. 
I can't do anything until God tells me. Is that really how God has planned it for his children? Friends, he gave us something so much better. He gave us the word of God. He uses his word to mature us. He uses the Bible so that we begin to think like God. We begin to act like God. Begin obediently following after God. So when those decisions come, we don't have to say, Lord, we know his word and we act on what we know. Is it sinful? Is it bad? Does it hurt people? And friends, you have freedom in Christ to make a decision. And this is where verse 17, if you turn back to 2 Timothy 3, comes into our lives. His, his word is there so that we begin to think like him and, and do and say what he would have us to do and say. This is what Paul means for Timothy in verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We will value what he values. We will love what he loves because we're in the Bible. And we need to start spending more time meditating on God's word, learning it, making decisions, and walking in faith. God's word is sufficient. It's there to help us, to mold us, to change us. And later, the, right before the last verse in Psalm 119, he says, let my soul live and praise you and let your word Rule my life. Learn the word. Love the word. Use the word to live obedient lives before God. And then, friend, realize there's Christian freedom. And we need to stop binding the consciousness of other people. The consciousness of other people. The Bible is sufficient, friends, to trust in the word. Not in your subjective feelings. Not in your Liver shiver. However, it could just be indigestion, friends. Trust the word. And I want to warn you, we shouldn't make it a practice to, to go about sharing these feelings because what you're doing is discouraging anyone from disagreeing with you. Essentially, what you're saying is, my word from the Lord is now final. And, and you have to put your word of the Lord on the same level as scripture, and that's dangerous ground, friends. Last time I checked, you and I aren't God. So we should make it a practice in our lives to, to read his word and let his word be the final authority. You may think, you may be convinced, and you have the right to do that, to think that the Lord has told you this, but possibly it's not prudent to share it. Because in so doing, you're placing a priority on your words over against the word of God. And I've heard this. I've heard this more times than I can count. Especially I've heard this with men and women who are interested in someone else from the opposite sex. They're dating and they say things like, God told me to marry you. Run from that. Whether they intend it or not, it's manipulative. It's more judicious to say, I believe that God is leading me to make this decision. And I want others to have input in this. So whether or not it's in agreement to what God's word has for our, my life. To say it more flatly and in inviting people to give wisdom and direction. 
See, God told me is a conversation stopper. It involves, and if it involves other people, it can manipulate. So be careful, friends, and realize that God's word is sufficient to trust it and to read it and to study it. So trust the Bible because it teaches you how to live. Third and last, trust the Bible because you'll be completely equipped. God has to train us. God has to train us because we naturally want to do everything our own way. And our own way is not naturally God's way. We have our own ideas, our own plans, and we need to, they need to fall at the feet of King Jesus in submission to him. And as long as we have God's word, we will be people who are whole, lacking nothing and being ready for every good work. The man of God here, Paul has in mind Timothy specifically here. He's the man of God placed as shepherd of the church in Ephesus, and the word of God is what shapes him and makes him complete and equipped for every good work of ministry in this church family. And scripture is the chief means to bring a, a man of God to maturity. But this, just, this, this doesn't just apply to pastors or to Timothy. It can be a, applied to us all. And Paul uses two forms of the Greek word for equip here in verse 17. He says the same thing twice, essentially. He's, he's doubling emphasis. He's saying that the man or woman of God is super equipped by the word of God. Really, really equipped. The word of God never changes, but the word of God changes us. When we, when we change, we see the word differently. I don't know about you, but this has probably happened in your life where you're reading the Bible and you realize you read it years ago, but somehow today it means something new because things have changed in your life and now you're looking at it thinking, this is amazing. It's, it's like taking a diamond on a black cloth and rotating it and seeing new aspects that you didn't see before. That's how the word of God works in our lives. Spurgeon says, he who has been taught in scripture, steeped in scripture, saturated with scripture, is conscious of its permeating influence, and it gives him permanence, permanence of conviction, like a crimson dye in cloth. The tint of scripture is to not be got out of the soul once it's fixed there. Friends, this is the power of scripture. Have you ever washed a red sock in a load of whites? Does it affect just one piece of clothing? It permeates all of it. It affects everything. There isn't a piece of clothing in the wash that isn't affected in some way. And the Bible has this influence. It influences your thoughts and your words and your deeds and your life. Have you ever spent time in the word and walked away thinking differently now? that a verse that sticks in your mind? I remember when I was preaching through 1 Samuel a year and a half, two years ago in chapter three, and he says, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And what he's, what he's really saying is that the word of God will never easily pass away. There will never be discontinued or, or removed or lack substance. Another way of thinking about it is the words of God take up space. And for me, that, that verse just stuck in my mind. It affected me and convicted me and counseled me and comforted me. God's word has an effect on us. And Martin Luther talking about this is the, the word of a human being is a little sound that goes into the air and is gone. But the word of God is heavier than heaven and earth. Indeed, it outweighs the heavens and the earth and it will outlast them. You see what, what Luther is saying? Human words don't take up space. Human words pass away. 
Our words come and go, but God's word stays. It lasts. It impacts us. And what are human words? They're, scientifically, they're just a vibration of molecules in the air that fall in your ear, and then they're gone, and they haven't done a single thing. And I want to illustrate this for you, because if I watch football, I tend to talk to the TV. Am I the only one? And my kids are every time dumbfounded. Dad, they can't hear you. You know, Dad, they're not going to do what you say. And you think, well, maybe if I'm there, maybe if I attend the game, maybe that will have an effect, no matter what you Seahawks fans think. It doesn't. I stood on the sidelines on Friday night, really cold in Eatonville, and I screamed at Gavin Krolick's football team to, to do this and that. They didn't do any of it. They didn't listen to my words. They fell to the ground. They were gone. Your words come and go. Human words evaporate. Human words pass away. Human words don't actually have any real substantial effect. God's word is not like our words. Not at all. See, Samuel is saying in 1 Samuel 3, God's word will not fall to the ground. When it says that God's word will not return void, it means that when God speaks, it is reality. It shapes reality. It defines reality. His words are the eye beams of the structure of reality. His words don't fall to the ground. When it says that scriptures cannot be broken, he is saying anything God says will have an effect. It, can, it cannot be powerless. When it says the law of God, there's not a jot or tittle will pass away until it's all fulfilled, he's saying the same thing. If the word of God cannot fall to the ground, how does this apply to us? See, the word of God cannot be resisted. The word of God will break you one way or another. Jeremiah 23, 29, it is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Our words can have effect, but they don't change people. We can have influence, but that's the extent. God's words are final. You either submit to it or be submitted by it. And for my unbelieving friends that are here this morning, that are not Christians, those that have rejected God and his word, God's word will have final word in your life. God in his righteous judgment will judge you for your sin when you stand before him all by yourself. You will have nowhere to run. You will have no defense. You'll have no wise words, no justifiable explanation for how you lived. You will stand before the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, and you will give an answer for your life for your rejection of him. And you'll have nothing to say. See, friends, everyone will stand before God. And he will either be your holy judge or holy father. And your words will mean nothing And we want you to stand before God as Holy Father and not Holy Judge. Jesus Christ is the answer.
He is the way. His, his life and perfect sacrifice on the cross is the way for you to stand before God, holy, unblemished, complete, and perfect. And it's only through Jesus Christ. He lived and he died and he rose again on the third day to satisfy the wrath of God due our sin. And I implore you this morning to turn from your sin. To turn from your reliance upon yourself. And turn to Jesus Christ and trust in him alone. There is great news for you this morning if you're not a Christian. There is a better life than the one you've been living. There is a life, even with trials and sufferings, that's full of better friends and purpose and joy and family and reward and peace and usefulness and hope than you've ever imagined. And the joy and peace and purpose that Christ gives you is not dependent on your outward circumstances. And there are plenty of Christians seated right here that can testify to this. They're the ones that recognize who they are before God and who they now are in Jesus Christ. And that's the work of God in their life. And it only comes because of Jesus Christ and through him making us wise for salvation through his word. See, it always comes back to his word. Paul says, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Brothers and sisters, God will equip you through his word. Either all scripture is God-breathed or it's not. Either it is useful, all of it, or it's not. Either it equips you or it doesn't. And friends, if you're not in the habit of reading the word, please let me know. Let another elder know, because we want to encourage you. We want to help. We, we find our help as Christians in reading and studying the Bible. And so maybe you need to connect to another Christian and read the word together. Here's a new idea. Raise your hand if you have a cell phone. Just want to make sure you're awake. If you're not able to read the Bible by yourself, Call a friend and read it together. 10 minutes a day. Look for someone here. Friends, it's that important that we read the word. And this is what the church does. We read the word. I mean, wouldn't it be incredible for us as Bible church members that we love the Bible more than any other book on earth? And men, this morning, we, we need to be consistent in our time in the word. Fathers, husbands, we need to lead our families and our spouses and our kids in reading the word. Women, you need to be Bible women. You need to run to the word, not the world for answers. And I know many mothers that are overwhelmed. I have one a wife at home that is overwhelmed by kids who constantly don't listen. And we love them in spite of that. And, and feel like day in and day out, the day escapes her from reading the word 
And I want to be an encouragement to that. Find a way, an audio version of the Bible playing while the chaos is happening. And pray that God would use his word to change you. To find a friend this morning and, and confide in them that you're struggling to read the word and you need encouragement this week. You need a call in the middle of the week to find out how you're doing. Reach out to someone and ask for that. We need to be Bible people. A few of you I texted this week and you shared with me that, that I would pray for you, that you would do this. And I have been praying, friends. Are you praying? Are you praying for one another? That's part of our duty as a church, as members of this family, to pray for one another. Pray that we're in the word. Pray that God would use his word to grow us, become more like Jesus. I'm going to keep praying for you, friends. Well, as I said earlier, we have an opportunity this morning to see the word as we partake in the Lord's Supper. We're going to transition to that. This is one of the ordinances of the church. This is the duty of a Christian. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then I'm going to strongly encourage you to not partake of this time, this meal. This is for Christians. Please watch us as we worship together and then find myself or another elder after this morning. We'd love to talk to you about the gospel. And Christian, I'll remind you, you're not partaking of this meal this morning as a perfect Christian. You've all sinned this week, either in deed or in word or in mind. And so as we pass out the elements of this meal, I want you to spend time considering your sin and confessing it to God. He says in his word, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And I pray that you would spend that time doing that as we hand out the bread. So as the men come forward this morning, I'm going to pray. So men, come on up here as I pray, and then we'll hand out the bread. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die in our behalf. His broken body for us causes us to remember. His life on the cross, his death on the cross was sufficient to pay for our sins. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for sending him on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.